Today's bag of bones warning has nothing to do with blood and guts, but I do need to give you a head up that this episode does deal with a lot of religious beliefs, primarily Christianity, and if that's something that you don't care for or might be offended by, maybe skip this episode. No hard feelings, we're good. When people hear the word exorcism, they immediately go to Hollywood and can list any number of movies that used this particular theme as its draw. But here's the thing that might surprise you. Much of what they show in the movies has happened in actual possessions. Maybe not the complete spinning of the head as seen in The Exorcist, but all the other stuff? Yeah, that really happens. So if you're ready to dive into the who's, the where's, the why's, and the what's of demon possession, strap yourself down and grab your holy water, because we're going in. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. If your only knowledge of exorcisms comes from the highly publicized and televised and monetized 2020 episode in 1991, where they put a teenage girl known as Gina in the spotlight, we have a lot of ground to cover. A supposed exorcism was performed for live television. I'm not going to go over every segment, but just to give you some idea, our teenager Gina was dressed in white and not told why she was going into this room with all of these people and cameras. She was given a glass of holy water, which she drank, and they waited. In my humble opinion, they poked and prodded until they got a response. Any response. Eventually, Gina talked in a low voice, saying things like, he's not leaving. And then at another time, she talked in a very high voice, claiming to be Minga, a short woman. She was being held down and pressed into a couch while the priest pressed across into her cheek and forehead. She was being held in place by an elderly woman and another woman. Nothing against elderly women. I'd like to aspire to be one one day but it's information that's valuable as this episode continues. The girl screams for them to stay away. She tries to push them away, but then turns her face away, finally screaming, help, I don't want this, and breaks down crying. They end up binding her arms to the chairs while she cries, no, no, I want to go. She looks directly at an older woman holding her hands, shouting, please, please do something. The voice of the priest who was present is heard over Gina's cries for help in the background, and he was sure that her screams were, quote, the prelude to her rising up off the floor if she wasn't held down, end quote. The interviewer questioned the priest's methods by mentioning, quote, a psychiatrist who was working with her was convinced she was psychotic, not necessarily possessed. How do you explain the difference, end quote? The priest replied with, quote, well, I think one of the basic questions I would have to ask would be, does the psychiatrist believe that possession is possible? And, merely because it's psychotic, 
doesn't necessarily exclude the presence of demons, end quote. The Palm Beach, Florida diocese was hoping that by participating in the televised event that it would help bring the truth of Satan's evil from superstition to reality. But that's not really what happened. The 2020s show of the possession of the Florida teenage girl did absolutely nothing for those who may be sincerely trying to warn the people of today that demon possession really is a serious matter. So, how did the televised event end? The priest who performed the exorcism chose to remain anonymous and to only be known by Father A. He read the Roman Catholic rite of exorcism and told the parents that she was healed. But a few days later, her mother took her back to the doctor where she was hospitalized and given antipsychotic drugs. Gina's psychiatrist in Miami said, quote, The ceremony was a significant risk to her health. If part of her delusion is that she is possessed, it might have confirmed that delusion, end quote. Which brings up the subject of what if they're not possessed by anything otherworldly, that they are just suffering from a mental illness? And I say just, meaning no disrespect, but the two have very different remedies. Richard Gallagher is a doctor and the author of the book Demonic Foes, who has chosen to come on board, bridging the gap, so to speak, between the two worlds. He was consulted on a case whom he names only as Julia, but she claimed to be a queen in the world of Satanism. She worshipped the devil and even ran her own satanic cult. Now, just that sentence alone doesn't imply either mental illness or possession, just a choice. There are many who practice Satanism all over the world and never get possessed or slip into madness. There are many who do, but that's a different episode for a different day. It was Julia's behaviors that were brought into question, and it was she who actually came to the priest for help claiming that she feels like she'd been possessed. This is where the sarcastic side of me wants to come out and say, well, what did you think was going to happen? You ask for something, and you ask for something, and then when you get it, you're not happy, and you want it back out again. Again, another episode for another day. But word of warning, people, don't just mess with stuff if you're not ready for the consequences. Just saying. Before their meeting, Dr. Gallagher tells of a peculiar episode he had at home the night before he was ready to go to this appointment. He said that his two cats got into this huge brawl, completely out of character for them. He separated them and calmed them down, thinking no more of it, until he walked into the room to meet Julia. Her first words to him were something along the lines of, How did you like the cats? I could have confidently turned around at that point and said, Yep, possession. But he went on with his mental exam. He says he was able to rule out mental illness pretty quickly when he saw his patient, quote, enter trance-like states and finding items flying off the shelves in his office, Julia speaking in tongues, and sharing details about his life that she couldn't know, end quote. Julia was eventually exercised. Dr. Gallagher did not attend. The process during which she allegedly spewed threats, levitated, exhibited supreme strength, and changed the temperature of the room. So here, let me add a bit of context, assuming not everyone is acquainted with the world of exorcists and possession. It is a very real thing, and has been documented for years, hundreds of years, and in every culture. And before we knew the depths of mental illness and what it involves, and are still learning, many suffered at the hands of those trying to save them of demons when the demons were off doing other things elsewhere. There are some truly sad cases, but they didn't know. 
Today, there is so much more insight. Using the Bible as a reference and the many, many, many witness testimonies of past exorcisms, they developed a, for lack of a better word, a checklist of symptoms. In fact, the New Testament mentions demons over 100 times, including John 10.10, Matthew 8.16, Matthew 10.1, and John 16.11, and others, if you care to investigate further. So, if you're ready, you might be possessed if, and while I make light of it to conquer my own fears talking about this, these things are very real and have happened. Levitation and All I can think of here is Bill Murray's line in Ghostbusters movie, three feet above the sheets. That was the scene when he sees Sigourney Weaver's possessed character floating above her bed. Do you remember? So good. Another one. Speaking in foreign or ancient languages you could not have possibly been taught. Foresight. Being able to predict things yet to come. Intimate knowledge of people in the room that you would not have been able to know about. Side note. I just found out, according to these records, the reason the Bible asks you to confess your sins is because Satan can't access them once you've confessed. He can't see them and use them against you. It's only the sins that you keep to yourself that he is able to manipulate and use to his advantage. So, yeah, I found that interesting. Even though God already knows all the things, he wants you to confess them with your mouth so they are rendered powerless and absolved. And this knowledge came out, apparently, through an exorcism. The exorcist was asking the devil-slash-demon to prove something or other, and it said that he couldn't, and that was the reason why. 2 Corinthians 2.10 and 11 says, quote, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. End quote. Anyway, you know you're possessed if you spew your body weight in bile, unnatural strength, being able to pull away from 12 people holding you down, and of course, an overwhelming aversion to anything having to do with God, religion, or anything holy. So with all of these things going on in real demonic possessions, you can see why I'm a bit skeptical of poor Gina actually being possessed. In rebuttal to the priest that said that you have to be willing to believe, If I saw any one of those things, much less several, I'd be a believer. Gina honestly didn't display any of those things. She spoke gibberish, but not another language. And they kept saying she had such hate in her eyes. First of all, it looked like fear. And then, second, I would be none too happy with anyone trying to take me down and smooshing crosses into my face either. And let's not forget the fact that she was being restrained by the senior citizens. Need I say more? The Catholic religion believes that true demonic possessions are rare and occur in one out of every 5,000 that are reported. One expert on the subject offers this advice in discerning the difference, quote, if prayer solves the problem, then it was probably not schizophrenia. If medicine helps alleviate the problem, it was not demonic possession. End quote. These days, the Catholic team of exorcists now rely heavily on psychological testing before they even think about giving consent to perform an exorcism. And this is where Dr. Gallagher came into the picture and just stayed. He says, quote, I've helped clergy from multiple denominations and faiths to filter episodes of mental illnesses. 
which represent the overwhelming majority of cases, from literally the devil's work. It's an unlikely role for an academic physician, but I don't see these two aspects of my career in conflict. The same habits that shape what I do as a professor and psychiatrist, open-mindedness, respect for evidence, and compassion for suffering people, led me to aid in the work of discerning attacks by what I believe are evil spirits and, just as critically, differentiating these extremely rare events from medical conditions. Unfortunately, not all clergy involved in this complex field are as cautious as the priest who first approached me. People with psychological problems should receive psychological treatment, end quote. He says that he goes into every meeting with a skeptical viewpoint and assumes that it is most likely a mental issue, but he does believe in possession and that many occur from people just messing around with the occult. He says, quote, possession can happen to anybody, and it has throughout history. I've met people with completely agnostic or atheistic beliefs who somehow dabbled in the occult, then found themselves in way over their heads, end quote. His doctor side comes out as he explains, quote, Individuals who think they are being attacked by malign spirits are generally experiencing nothing of the sort. Practitioners see psychotic patients all the time who claim to see or hear demons. Histrionic or highly suggestible individuals, such as those suffering from disassociative identity syndromes and patients with personality disorders who are prone to misinterpret destructive feelings, in what exorcists sometimes call a pseudo-possession, via the defense mechanism of the externalizing projection. But, what am I supposed to make of patients who unexpectedly start speaking perfect Latin? End quote. Solid point. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, Personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. In 1928, an exorcism took place in the parish that Reverend Joseph Steiger was in charge of. He not only witnessed the events, but shared them so that they could be published. The exorcism of Anna Eklund is one of the most well-documented of its kind. It was performed by Father Theophilus Reisinger and attended by over a dozen nuns that had to take shifts through the event because it was so physically and emotionally exhausting. Just some back history on Anna. She was possessed once before when she was only 14, and they believed that she was well. But she came back to the same father, Father Reisinger, when the troubles began again. She was a devout Christian, 
a Catholic who spent a lot of time at her local church until she couldn't, meaning eventually she was unable to partake of sacrament without getting sick, and then she was physically unable to get close to the church without her body convulsing. Here's an excerpt of when the exorcism started to really heat up. Quote, There was a suspicion that the devil might attempt attacking the exorcist during this ceremony. Should anything unusual happen, the nuns were to hold the woman quiet upon her bed. Soon after the prescribed prayers of the church had begun, the woman's eyes closed up so tight that no force could open them. Father Theophilus had hardly begun the formula of exorcism in the name of the Blessed Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, in the name of the crucified Savior, when a hair-raising scene occurred. With lightning speed, the possessed dislodged herself from the bed and from the hands of her guards, and her body carried through the air, landed high above the door of the room, and clung to the wall with a tenacious grip. All present were struck with a trembling fear. Father Theophilus alone kept his peace. Real force had to be applied to her feet to bring her down from her high position on the wall. Again, she was resting upon the mattress. To avoid another such feat, precautions were taken and she was held down tightly with stronger hands. The exorcism was resumed. The prayers of the church were continued. Suddenly, a loud, shrill voice rent the air. Satan howled as though he had been struck over the head with a club. Like a pack of wild beasts suddenly let loose, the terrifying noises sounded aloud as they came out of the mouth of the possessed woman. Those present were struck with a terrible fear that penetrated the very marrow of their bones. Silence, Satan! Keep quiet, you infamous reprobate! Side note, I love words. Sorry, back to our story. Quote, The gruesome sight, because of the distorted members of her body, was unbearable, frothing, and spitting and vomiting forth unmentionable excrements from the mouth of the poor creature, they would try and ward off the influence of the exorcist. Side note, here he goes into great detail of the contents and odor of said vomiting, but I shall spare you. He continues, quote, On various occasions there were different voices coming out of the woman which indicated that unnumbered spirits were here involved, end quote. Father Theophilus questioned the demons, trying to find out how many and who all was in there. The book goes on to tell how it went down and how they responded. He does caution the reader, quote, It must be remembered that these battles and encounters with the devil extended over a number of days. At times the answers were interrupted with hours and hours of howling and yelling, end quote. Father Gary Thomas addresses this topic. He says that the demons are under command that they have to answer. They don't really want to and will try to divert the attention, lie, or cause distraction. This is because, once the exorcist knows the answers, it begins to rob the demon of their power and their hold on the victim. So, this is where much of the shenanigans and distractions happen. The three questions are, what is your name? How did you get in? When are you leaving? Father Thomas says, quote, You don't get into any kind of, well, I'm kind of curious, what's it like to be a demon? End quote. Other exorcists say they like to also ask, How many are dwelling inside this vessel? So they know what they're dealing with. They say that sometimes their names are biblical, and other times they like to be called things like lust, anger, or hatred. But they're going to do everything possible not to tell you. Back to our story of Anna. 
the body of poor Anna is being tormented inside and out. He writes that her body contorts in unnatural positions and her face swells up as far as the skin will stretch, eyes popping from their sockets and her lips swollen. And then it will go in the opposite where her skin is barely enough to stretch across her bones. She has barely been able to take in nourishment and has continued to hurl bile and spit at those in the room. The demon has, by this point, given up some of that valuable information, and Father Reisinger is able to get the upper hand. Reverend Steiger continues his observation, quote, At one point the devil screams out at the treatment of him, You will have to suffer for this. But the calm and stern and level-headed father retorted, quote, Be quiet, you hellish serpent. I am standing under the protection of the Almighty God, and against his power you are absolutely helpless, you detestable hellhound, And I was always taught to fight without name-calling. The exorcism went on for twenty-three days. In the final days, Father Theophilus is said to have tapped into some kind of superhuman gift to be able to complete what was required of him. Quote, for three days and three nights he kept on without any intermission. At the close of the twenty-third day, he was completely spent. He had the appearance of a walking corpse, a figure which at any moment might collapse. His own countenance seemed to have aged twenty years during. On that twenty-third day, the devils had one final moment. The poor woman, quote, broke from the grip of her protectors and stood erect before them. Only her heels were touching the bed. At first sight, it appeared as if she were to be hurled up to the ceiling, end quote. The father gave a final command, end quote. At that very moment, the stiffness of the woman's body gave way and she fell upon the bed, end quote. It was over. I think it was safe to say that she exhibited plenty of proof that could turn any non-believer into a believer that demonic possession is certainly a possibility. Reverend Steiger, the one who described the above, was a believer, but he had never seen anything like this. Dr. Gallagher says, quote, In modern times, especially in the developed world, many people think the possessed are just mentally ill. I leave the official diagnosis process to the clergy, but I'm well aware that to constitute a possession, you have to rule out psychiatric and medical illnesses some of which have superficial similarities, but are really quite different. You must have clear and rigorous evidence. You're not supposed to assume that this happens without a lot of very hard evidence. Mentally ill people can't all of a sudden speak foreign languages. They don't exhibit levitation. They don't have superhuman strengths. And as Julia exhibited on many occasions, they don't have psychic abilities enabling them to reveal information called hidden knowledge. All of these symptoms are a good indication that there's a separate creature involved. End quote. If you're ready for more, after this quick break, this next story is a two-for-one special. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, We'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The Devil Made Me Do It, case of 1981. The New York Times headlines shout out to its readers, quote, 
for the killing of a man named Alan Bono, the first murder this quiet town has known in decades, the court and the public are being asked to let the devil take the blame. The defendant, the story goes, was possessed by demons, end quote. Alan Bono was managing the Brookfield boarding kennels for his sister. Debbie Gladsell was one of the dog groomers there. Debbie's boyfriend, 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, his two sisters, aged 15 and 13, plus a cousin, aged 9, decided to stop in and see Debbie at work one afternoon. Alan Bono hadn't been in town very long and didn't have many acquaintances, so when the whole gang was there, he invited them all out to lunch. He was drinking heavily, they would all remember. After lunch, he returned to the kennels where Arnie repaired his stereo for him. Bono invited everyone up to his apartment, which was over the kennels, and was showing off his television, and turned up the sound beyond loud. The girl said Bono started punching his fist into the palm of his hand. Debbie decided, wisely, that it was time to go, so she began to usher the girls back downstairs following Arnie. But just as they were moving towards the stairs, Bono grabbed the nine-year-old cousin Mary and pulled her to him. Debbie attempted to free the child from the man's grip, but he was unrelenting. When they didn't come down, Arnie appeared in the room once again and saw him holding on to Mary's arm. He told Bono to let go. Arnie's sister would later tell the Washington Post reporter about the brother's actions. Quote, All of a sudden, it just broke. He was like a stone and I couldn't budge him. End quote. The whole thing was over in minutes. Arnie had pulled a pocket knife and stabbed Alan Bono four or five times in the chest area with one long wound that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. His sister claimed that he was growling like some kind of animal. Then dropping the knife to the floor, he calmly left the apartment and walked straight into a nearby wooded area. His sister would say, quote, Alan Bono just stood there, punching his fist into his palm. Stood there that is, for a long moment or two, before he fell on his face and lay there on the ground, end quote. He died several hours later. Officers picked up Johnson and took him to the Bridgeport Correctional Center and held him on a $125,000 bail. The Washington Post would print, quote, An ordinary murder. That's the way the police saw it, and the way they see it still. And, in fact, the killing of Alan Bono seemed straightforward enough on the surface, a flash flood of anger along with the low barren stretches of the human heart, the way it happens sometimes, when something upsets the balance of affection and fury, end quote. Arnie's lawyer, Martin Manila, entered a plea of not guilty, because he was demonically possessed at the time. He would say, quote, The courts have dealt with the existence of God, now they're going to deal with the existence of the devil. Or not. Judge Robert Callahan, who presided over the jury trial, did not allow the demonic possession defense. He said, quote, Allowing such testimony in the court would be irrelative and unscientific, he said. The court will take judicial notice that the profession, the business, or hobby of locating demons has not risen to that level of viability where it would be of assistance to the jury in deciding the case. End quote. I didn't come up with this, Manila said. This is what was presented to me. I went to see Ed and Lorraine, and I decided to take the case after talking to them. They told me that when you're possessed, you have no control of your actions. That stuck in my mind, end quote. Ed Warren would say in an interview years later, quote, If only the judge would have let us bring in our evidence, recordings, photographs, eyewitness accounts, 
and the priests. The priests were waiting outside the courthouse to testify that what occurred to this boy and to Arnie Johnson was indeed diabolical possession, but I could understand the judge's feelings too. He didn't want to be known as the judge who allowed the devil-made-me-do-it case in his courtroom, and the devil did make him do it. Arnie Johnson was under diabolical possession, end quote. And his wife Lorraine Warren had this to say, quote, We knew it was inevitable that there was going to be a tragedy. We even notified the police. There was nothing they could do before that fact. All the priests knew it. All the priests were well aware that there would be a tragedy, but never, ever did we think it would be Arnie Johnson. End quote. On November 24th, the jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days. Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. A model inmate, he was released five years later. And yes, you heard correctly. If you are the fan of the horror or paranormal genre, you are familiar with the names of Ed and Lorraine Warren. You may even be thinking, Ed and Lorraine Warren? Not THE Ed and Lorraine Warren of the Conjuring movie franchise? Why, yes, the very same. In fact, this plot became loosely based on the true case for Conjuring 3. Say it with me, the devil made me do it. For the courtroom, they were not able to use anything relating to demon possession, but Debbie would tell Ed and Lorraine that in the three months prior to the stabbing, her fiancé had started to show some odd behavior, falling into trances, growling, hallucinating, which he wouldn't remember afterward. This was all alarmingly similar to her youngest brother's recent behavior, which began in the summer of 1980 after he'd entered a rental property the couple had acquired. I did promise you a twofer, and Ed and Lorraine are going to help with that. They were originally called to a case of young David Glatzel, who was showing signs of being possessed, and the family had all kinds of paranormal activity happening around the house. David Glatzel was Debbie's younger brother. Debbie and Arnie were living with her family at the time. The mother and sister were playing with the occult at a new friend's house, someone they had literally just met that day. And the boy, David, saw an old man there wearing a plaid shirt. He pointed at the boy and told him, Beware, and pushed him back on the waterbed. Later in his own house, he saw the man again, only this time he was completely burned and he had hooves instead of feet. And so it began. The family began to hear thumps on the floor, high-pitched screams. The rocking chair would rock violently back and forth with no one around. And David began to be sullen angry. His mother, Judy, said he started to spit, growl, and swear. When he would be lying in his own bed, he would grasp at his neck, choking and gasping, as if he were trying to free himself from invisible hands. After twelve days of this behavior, the Glatzels reached out to Ed and Lorraine, who happened to only live a few towns over. Once they came in and did, whatever it is they do, they believed that the boy was in need of an exorcism and got the ball rolling. The family watched over him day and night. Arnie would work at his landscaping and tree-cutting job during the day, come home and take a nap so he could take the night shift with David so the parents could get some rest. The Warrens say they have stacks of photos and miles of tape recordings documenting what this poor child had to endure. At one point, the family was all particularly exhausted. I believe the research said that they were pausing for a break mid-exorcism, you know, when the demons are all wound up and the humans are worn down. Arnie issued a challenge. 
He shouted something along the lines of, Leave him alone! Come into me! Just leave my buddy alone! The whole room went silent. Even the boy was quiet, panting heavily. Ed Warren would remember of the moment, quote, It's just one of those things you never do, not if you know anything about this sort of thing, end quote. We tried to warn Arnie, Lorraine sighed heavily, but he just wouldn't listen. Even Debbie would look back shocked. She said, he wanted to do what he could to help David. He said, I'm not afraid of you, I'll fight you. I said, oh my God, Cheyenne, why would you say that? And he said, I didn't like to see your brother like that, End quote. After a few moments of silence, David slowly opened his eyes and stared directly at Arnie. He finally said in a voice that was not his own, quote, They're laughing at you. Now, if that's not in the movie, they missed a great moment. Just saying. And that's how the demon got into Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. They eventually released David from all of his demons. The Warrens and the priest claimed they spoke to 43. And as for Arnie, in 1984, he and Debbie got married while he was still in jail and they went on to create a family of their own. And the Warrens, Lorraine would smile her thin little smile and look into the camera, unflinching, quote, Will we have a book written about this? Yes, we will. Will we lecture about it? Yes, we will. Are they talking to writers and movie producers? No, we're not, she says. Our agents at William Morris Agency are, end quote. I'm giving the Washington Post the final word on this segment, which I think is valuable. They would write, quote, Somehow the murder gets lost in all of this. All that seems interesting is the idea that the devil made Cheyenne do it. End quote. The Catholic Encyclopedia defines exorcism as, quote, The act of driving out or warding off demons or evil spirits from persons, places, or things which are believed to be possessed or infested by them, or are liable to become victims or instruments of their malice. In short, it is a ritual performed by Catholic priests to expel the devil from a person, place, or thing, end quote. Which makes me wonder, how did it get in there in the first place? Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Even if it is repeatedly emphasized as the powers of evil spirit, they are looked upon as purely superstitious. They are brushed aside and not given a second thought. That Satan has succeeded in making man so indifferent regarding his actions of misleading men is one of the greatest and most advantageous accomplishments. 
people rarely listen to anything of a supernatural nature. That's a quote by Carl Vogel. He's the one who actually authored the book on the possession of Anna Eklund. That quote dates back to the 1920s and is still relevant today. For a more modern viewpoint, going back to Dr. Richard Gallagher, he says this, quote, There is a decline of traditional religions. It's quite clear that mainstream religions, not just Christianity, have had a decline in recent decades. When people give up a mainstream or more orthodox type of religion, they generally develop some kind of substitute belief system. That often involves ideas about energy forces, occult themes, and visitations by spirits. A lot of exorcists feel that through alternate spiritualities, these people have opened themselves up to evil forces and evil spirits in ways that more mainstream religious people are protected from, end quote. In the 1980s, Father Lawrence Gessy of Baltimore was vocal about the impact of cultural acceptance of satanic rituals and New Age spiritualism. He says, quote, We see today where people openly and willingly invite Satan into their lives without being aware of it. End quote. But for more clarity, I know just the guy to address this topic. He is probably best known from another Hollywood favorite which was written about his life, not as a demon-possessed victim, but his journey to become an exorcist. Gary Thomas's story was played out in the movie The Right, which starred Anthony Hopkins. He lets us know that exorcisms are still happening and that they always have. He says, quote, The church has always performed exorcisms. People in the church will sometimes say, We don't do them anymore, which is absolutely false. In 2004, Pope John Paul II issued a mandate telling every bishop in the world to select a priest and train him to be an exorcist. That was because of the growing occult activity, which has reached epidemic proportions. End quote. He says that the battle of good versus evil has been going on ever since the whole apple debacle. So where did Satan come from, and why would God make such a creature to make things difficult on his most beloved creations? Father Thomas explains that God didn't create Satan. He says, quote, Satan comes from the Hebrew word meaning adversary. Satan wasn't created. The angel Lucifer, God's angel of light, became Satan. When Lucifer changed his role, his name changed, end quote. That makes things so much more clear for me. He seems to follow in the same vein of the others mentioned above that Satan doesn't have to present himself as the ruler of evil. He is the father of lies, so uses means that seem so not evil and has no lack of new followers. He says, quote, For many people, Christianity is no longer relevant, so they make up for their own mortality, their own way of living. Unfortunately, a lot of people are seeking out what we could call divination, artificial forms of trying to discover God. He says, We are all spiritual beings. We all have a soul. People are still searching because there are questions in our life that will never become fully addressed while we live. And that is where science ends and spirituality slash faith begins. The Israelites in the Old Testament did this and they experienced great calamity as a result of it. The same thing is happening in our culture today. The culture is becoming increasingly pagan, end quote. Dr. Virgil Michael adds with a heavy heart, quote, what is this but a great surrender to the powers of evil? End quote. And when, 
dare I say everyone that I research talk about paganism, it may not be what you're thinking. In fact, that's what they say makes the whole thing brilliant. When people mention paganism, they usually think of the hooved creature with red eyes and horns or some other kind of monster. I think we could all collectively say, oh, um, I'm not going to mess with that. Bad things will happen. I just know. Not for one second are you thinking of taking it home to play with it. So Satan sneaks into your home and your lives and comfort levels in a multitude of other ways that you don't even suspect. It's like that old story, how do you boil a frog without him jumping out? Well, you don't start with the boiling water. You start with a mild, comfortable temperature and slowly increase it to where by the time he recognizes he is in danger, he is, well, boiled. Father Thomas gives a list of items that he considers mild temperature water forms of paganism. Quote, people using Ouija boards. This is a conjuring instrument, not a toy. Tarot cards, seeking palm readers, seeking mediums, seeking out a witch, performing seances, getting involved in meditations, end quote. The list went on, but actually, you know, you get the idea. He goes on to say, quote, one thing people get wrong is thinking that Satan does not exist. Satan does exist. That's why Jesus Christ came, and that's important. I'm not trying to evangelize you, but this is why I give interviews. Jesus didn't come just to be a nice guy. His death and resurrection defeated Satan, end quote. Besides our own tempting and testing of the dark hands of fate, Father Thomas says that abuse is a huge doorway for demonic spirits to enter. Familial abuse is even worse. Our earlier story about Anna involves abuse. It turns out, if you look deeper into her case, she was a very devout Catholic, did all the things that were required of her, but there was abuse in her home. Her father was abusive, and when her mother passed away, it escalated, and then it involves her aunt as well. The father and the aunt were supposedly having an affair, and when they both died, they were part of the spirits that inhabited and tortured the child. Father Thomas elaborates, quote, Abuse is the doorway. That's a soul wound, and demons are always looking for people with broken relationships or no relationships. The vast majority of people who come to me do not get involved in this stuff in order to connect with Satan, but you're creating an impression of a desire for a relationship. That's what a possession is. It's a relationship, and it's not equal, end quote. When someone comes to his team about a possible possession, they are run through the psychological testing first. And when they get to him, he runs them through a gamut of questions, including what brought you to an exorcist? What was the tipping point? When did that happen? Have you ever been exposed to the occult? Involved in anything satanic? What was it like growing up in your home? Have you ever been under the care of a therapist? Have you ever been a victim of sexual or physical abuse? or emotional abuse. He says, quote, These people are evaluated. You only end up doing a formal exorcism when everything else has failed, end quote. And even though he runs through the gamut of questions, he says that usually a dead giveaway is when he starts to pray over the person and they start foaming at the mouth. You probably have a demon on your hands because the demon is rebuking the prayer. I can only assume that he keeps a lot of tissues in his office. So knowing this secret shortcut, why bother with all the extra questions? His answer is that no matter what brought the person to sit across from him, they are hurting. 
They are wounded and seek healing, and that, he believes, is his purpose. He says, quote, Every person who approaches us is coming with an issue involving some form, sometimes intense, of suffering. My role as the exorcist of my diocese is to get to the root cause of the suffering, whether it's demonic or medical or psychological, something that is other. This ministry is about healing. It's like going to see a physician. A physician can't help you until they learn your symptoms. End quote. And finally, to all those skeptics out there who don't believe that demonic possession is a thing, here's what Dr. Gallagher has to say about that. Quote, you have to decide. Is there enough knowledge based on historical evidence? You can't really prove how many people crossed the Delaware with George Washington. You have to accept it on the basis of sound testimony. It's the same with exorcisms. You have to look at the testimony. Does it seem to be reasonable? Is it consistent with other teachings? For instance, teachings of the major faiths, all which believe in evil spirits. It's a historical subject. I never suggest to people, I want you to believe me. My job is not to convert anyone. My job is to present the evidence for the reasons that I want to help people and enlighten those who are open to the evidence. End quote. Dr. Virgil Michael wrote the foreword for the book on Anna Eklund's exorcism in 1928 and included this quote, For a time it was fashionable to scoff at demoniacal possessions as part and parcel of an outmoded superstition of bygone ages of ignorance. But facts are stubborn, also against the scoffing of so-called enlightened criticism. Stubborn facts cannot be denied even when they baffle all natural explanation. End quote. So, here's one more story of someone we've all heard of who attempted to use the power of demonic possession as his defense for a mass-murdering spree. Only the devil didn't possess him, it possessed the neighbor's dog. So hang on for one last story of The Dog Made Me Do It. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. His name in the press was the 44 caliber killer because that was the method he used in his trail of bodies, killing six and wounding seven in less than a year's time. After a fourth murder done with a 44 caliber and the same M.O., a letter was left at the scene. Addressed to Captain Joe Borelli, he gave himself the name Son of Sam. His letters would rant in no particular order, written in all caps, some sentiments about why he kills, quote, to honor thy father, and quote, go out and kill, commands Father Sam, end quote. Other sections would explain why he is tormented, like, quote, when father gets drunk, he gets mean, he beats his family. Sometimes he ties me to the back of the house, other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood, end quote. Other rantings begs the police to end his suffering, quote, To stop me, you must kill me. Attention, all police, shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die, end quote. And then taunts the authorities at their lack of ability to catch him, quote, Let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster, end quote. But wait. Let's not forget the portion of the same letter that wishes its reader a happy holidays. Quote, To the people of Queens, I love you. 
and I want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. End quote. In May of 1977, the police knew they were looking for a paranoid schizophrenic who may have considered himself possessed of a demonic power. The killer was almost certainly a loner who had difficulty with relationships, particularly relationships with women. Enjoying his newfound public persona, Son of Sam then directed his letters to reporter Jimmy Breslin, who wrote for the Daily News, quote, Hello from the crack in the sidewalks of New York City, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which is filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Don't think because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather I am still here. Like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping for rest, anxious to please Sam. Sam's a thirsty lad. He won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Lauria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very sweet girl. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or, should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Ms. Loria. Thank you. It was signed, In Their Blood and From the Gutter, Sam's Creation, 44 Caliber. End quote. Donna Loria was his first victim, and her life was taken on July 29th. This note set the police up in arms, thinking something dreadful was set to happen as he celebrates his first anniversary. But apparently he was just enjoying watching the city panic, and he held off just to when the police had started to calm down before he took his next victim. He was riveted to this control. On the walls of his apartment, he had written in marker, quote, In this hole lives the wicked king. Kill for my master. I turn children into killers. End quote. David Berkowitz. He was born in 1953 and given up for adoption. He was adopted by a loving family days after his birth. He was 24 years old when he was arrested by way of a parking ticket. He claimed that his killing spree was in response of being possessed by the neighbor's dog. The dog, he says, was a 6,000-year-old demon that issued commands for Berkowitz to kill. He said that he tried to kill the dog, but his bullet was ineffective due to, quote, supernatural interference, end quote. David was classified by the defense psychiatrist as a paranoid schizophrenic. The prosecution's forensic psychiatrist said, quote, While defendant shows paranoid traits, they do not interfere with his fitness to stand trial. The defendant is as normal as anyone else, maybe a little neurotic, end quote. It really didn't matter either way since he pled guilty and confessed to all the crimes plus two additional stabbings that weren't linked to him and over 1,500 fires. He was sentenced to six life sentences in prison for the killings. Later, he blamed his murder spree on the Holland Oates song, Rich Girl, a satanic cult he belonged to, and that he was abused and suffered emotional trauma. And, at one time he claimed he didn't act alone, 
giving the police a list of names of others who participated. And then it shifted to he was not actually the son of Sam, but a lookout for the actual shooter. And then, of course, pornography was to blame. In 1979, Robert Ressler, an FBI veteran, interviewed Berkowitz in Attica Prison three times. He finally admitted that the demon story was concocted to protect him when and if he was caught, so that he could try to convince the authorities he was insane. He admitted that he would become sexually aroused in the stalking and shooting of women. Stalking women had become a nightly adventure for him. If he didn't find a victim, he would go back to the scenes of his earlier murders and try to recall them. Ressler would say, quote, It was an erotic experience for him to see the remains of bloodstains on the ground, a police chalk mark or two, end quote. While he did admit that he wasn't possessed, as mentioned earlier, he did admit a dozen years later in a testimonial that by allowing Satan access to his mind and heart, he believed that it sent him on his path. He would write in part, quote, I began to read the Satanic Bible by the late Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan in San Francisco in 1966. I began, innocently, to practice various occult rituals and incantations. I am utterly convinced that something Satanic had entered into my mind and that, looking back at all that happened, I realized I had been slowly deceived. I did not know that bad things were going to result from all of this. Yet, over the months, the things that were wicked no longer seemed to be such. I was headed down the road to destruction, and I did not know it. Maybe I was at a point where I just didn't care anymore. End quote. And there you are. So, what have we learned from this episode? Do not play with the occult, and do not attempt to use demonic possession as a defense in a court of law. And, if we stretch it just a bit, sometimes Hollywood doesn't need to add much glitter to a story to make it a frightening movie because truth is sometimes stranger than fiction when you're playing in the devil's playground. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Special thanks to listener L.B. who suggested that we spend the first weeks of our brand new season on episodes that have been requested by listeners. There's still a bit more time if you'd like to submit your topic or idea event, or person for Bag of Bones to cover. Just reach out to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, or you can email me through the website at www.elizabethbougeret.com. I'm excited to hear your suggestions. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.